So in the 1800s, along the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, one of the biggest and saddest family feuds in American history raged on. You've probably heard of it before. It was the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Two families fought over several decades, entangled in this truly vicious cycle of revenge and retaliation leading to the deaths of over 60 people and hundreds more lives ruined. The conflict escalated to a point where the governor of Kentucky and the governor of Virginia were were threatening one another to send their militia to invade uh, the other state. And eventually, uh, some of the cases went all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, in order to be solved. And so after much blood was shed, the feud subsided when eight Hatfields were arrested and seven of them got life in prison and one of them was sent to be hanged. So this was a very tragic and sad feud that had drastic impacts and consequences. Now, how did this whole feud start? It must have been something really big and monumental if a tragedy of this scale was to happen. Well, no. You see, it all started because of a dispute over who owned a pig. See, one little conflict over whose hog this was led to the devastation of these two families. And I share this story to illustrate to you that a little conflict can go quite a long way if not handled properly. Now, I doubt most of the instances and and conflicts that will rise uh, in, in, that, w- that will occur in our lives will not rise to this level of, of family feud. But I do know that if not resolved properly and biblically, conflict sucks. It, it spoils and it, and it sucks the life out of the many relationships that we have, including our closest relationship, our marriage. You know, if you've been, if you've been married for more than a few months, you know that, that conflict is a perennial part of marriage. I mean, two sinners can't live together and there not be some sort of conflict. And when it does come, it's, it's truly exhausting and it, and it hurts. Things like, I'm just tired. I'm tired of fighting. I'm, I'm tired of, of these little things that shouldn't cause these big arguments just being blown into this large-scale conflict. I'm tired of, of going to bed angry and then waking up the next morning just to have another argument at the breakfast table. Continual conflict wears you down and it prevents you from, from enjoying the good and beautiful aspects of marriage that we've talked about in this series thus far. It, it puts this wall between you and your spouse preventing the companionship that God had designed to be there. And so for this morning's ser- sermon, we're going to be looking at the issue of, of conflict and how to solve it. Now, there are many blogs and articles and books that are written on the topic of conflict in marriage, but I find uh, when, I, when I read these things and, and look them up, there's really kind of two main problems with many of them that, that make them ultimately ineffective. First is they don't actually understand uh, the real reason for the conflict, And if you can't properly diagnose the the reason, then you can't provide the proper treatment. By way of an analogy, if if a doctor thinks that that the reason that I have a headache is because I have really tight neck muscles, when in reality there's actually, let's say, a tumor inside of my brain, well, the treatment that he prescribes, neck massages, is is not going to be effective. Likewise, If we can't properly diagnose why we have conflict, well, then we can't give a proper solution to it. So that's kind of the first problem with with a lot of uh, modern uh, ways of of dealing with conflict. A second problem is that many of these approaches try to treat the symptoms of conflict rather than eradicating it at its source. Uh, To work from the same analogy, you could... You could pump yourself full of extra strength Tylenol and yeah, that'll get rid of your headache and say, okay, I've, I've solved the problem. 
When in reality, you've just avoided the problem and you're treating the symptoms. There's a deeper problem that's causing your headache and that is what you need to deal with because one day, you might run out of Tylenol. Or maybe you've taken so much Tylenol to try to deal with this that you've built up this, um, this like, uh, ability where, where Tylenol no longer is effective, effective, effectively used on you. And so then what are you going to do? You're in trouble. We don't want to treat the symptoms. We want to deal with the source of conflict. And so you'll hear things today uh, and throughout all of history, you know, bad communication, that's, that's the problem. And so the solution is you need better communication. And I agree, yes, bad communication is a problem and it is present in many marital conflicts. But you can have good communicators who fight. Now, why, why is that? Well, because bad communication is a symptom, not the cause. And the same could be said about many of these other solutions that are offered. You know, we just, we just need to get on the same page and then there's going to be no more problems. We, we just need to spend more time together, maybe get out on dates more often and, and then we won't fight as much. We just need to compliment one another more. We, we just need to, to give each other some space when, when we get angry. You need to let me leave the room if I'm, if I'm going to start getting angry. Or, or we just need to you know, avoid, have these topics that we avoid because when we talk about them, then we get frustrated and we get angry. Now, some of these can be helpful, just like you know, a Tylenol used at the right time can, can have its place, but they're not the ultimate solution. You want to deal with the reason why you have conflict, not just cover it up or avoid conflict. We're not looking for a way out of conflict. We are, we are looking for a way through conflict so, so, that, so that we can come out better because of it. And so for this morning's sermon, that is our goal. We're going to find the reason for our conflict, and then we're going to find the solution for destroying it. And whether you're, you're married or not, if you are in relationships with any other human being, which you should be, or you have bigger problems, um, this is going to apply to everyone. You know, this is going to apply to how you relate to your siblings. This is going to apply how you relate to your parents, how you re- relate to your roommates or your coworkers. How do we figure out the real reason for our conflict and then destroy it? And so you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 10, and we will see what God has to say about conflict. And if you're wanting a Bible and you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some Bibles just over there by our, our coffee table that you are welcome to, to take uh, and, and take home uh, with you as our gift to you. Uh, so James chapter 4 verses 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongfully to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee From you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So, our sermon this morning has just two main points. First, a biblical understanding of conflict. And second, a biblical understanding of handling conflict. Or in kind of less technical terms, why do we fight 
And how do we stop it? Why do we have conflict and how do we stop it? And so first, a biblical understanding of conflict. And James doesn't waste any time with this. He gets right into it. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Very valid question. And essentially, he's, he's asking, why do we have conflict? What's, what's the reason that we, we get into these arguments, we get into these little scuffles where we find ourselves getting frustrated, getting angry, becoming bitter at our spouse or at others, becoming resentful, and, and falling into sin in some way? And his answer may surprise you or it may not. His answer is this. Your passions are at war within you. So it's not bad communication. It's not because of, you know, the difficult situations that you're in or because you had a rough day or you had a rough week and you're at work and you're, and you're coming home and, and now you have to deal with all that's going on. It's, it's not because of your, your kids or, or because of uh, you being under a lot of pressure. It's not even because of your spouse's sin. No. James says that the reason that we have quarrels and fights among us is your desires that cause you to fight with other people and nothing else. Now, what he means here by, by passions or desires is, is really anything that we, that we crave or that we lust for, as well as anything that we are, we are afraid of, of losing and, or, or fearful of, of facing. And these can be good things. I mean, we can have good desires. You, you might desire, for example, that your husband treats you kindly. And when, and when he isn't, you, know, you get angry because your desire is for him to treat you kindly. You're not getting that, so you get angry. Or, or you might desire that your wife would do more around the house. And, and when she doesn't, you make some kind of comment under your breath, like, if you don't do this, what do you do? Something like that. I mean, these, these are good desires that we, we can and should have, but where things start to go awry is when we desire them above our desire to obey God and his eternal purposes. And we desire them so much so that we are willing to sin for them by getting angry, by making a comment, by being frustrated. And this is a serious, it's serious sin too. It's not just something to brush off. Verse two tells us you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But these, these desires that we have coming from our heart are, are so strong and so self-interested that we are essentially willing to commit murder with our anger and our words if we don't get what we want or, or if we're not able to preserve the things that we already have. Now, we often deny the fact that it is my desires that cause me to fight with my spouse. I mean, the answer that we usually give to the question that James poses, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is because of my spouse did add anything to the end of that. And sure, your, your, spouse, your spouse does provide the context in which you got angry, and they may legitimately be in the wrong because of their behavior or sin. But they didn't make you sin. No one makes you sin. You, you choose to sin. Now, you could have not gotten angry, but you chose to get angry because you are not getting one of your passions or desires that you're wanting out of this situation. And James says that, that our, this sinful pursuit of our own desires is, is even displayed in our, in our prayers. Let me read verses 2 and 3 again. It says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so the first thing we notice here is that most of the time, there's just this blanket prayerlessness when it comes to our, our desires. You know, we, just, we just don't bring things to the Lord that we, that we long for, that we're struggling with. We don't ask him to provide what we need. We go out and we try to get them ourselves by fighting and by quarreling. You know, even if it means sinning, we, we, we want to sin rather than, than bring these things to the Lord. But James also says, even 
maybe even worse than that, is that even when we do ask God, our motivations are often self-serving. You know, we ask so that we can get what we want. And what's the, the, the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. But we prefer, we prefer my kingdom come, my will be done. You know, prayers like, like, Lord, I pray that you would make my husband easier to live with. Or, Lord, I pray that she would do a better job at her domestic duties. Or, Lord, I, I pray for some peace and quiet at home so, so I stop getting angry. Lord, I, I pray that you would help them to change. You know, these can all appear to be, to be pious, like we are, we are calling out to God. But many times, I think these, these prayers show that in a way, God is simply our, our genie. You know, we, want, we, want, we, we want to get what we want, so we come to the genie and we rub the lamp and we ask God to change them and to make our situation easier. Now, rather than being focused on the will of God for this situation, you know, we, we, seem, we, we, we say when we come to God begging for him to give us our passions and our desires, we're saying, I can't seem to get my spouse to conform to my image, and so I'm going to enlist the help of God in order to do that. And for that, James, James gives a very stern rebuke to us in doing that. Verses 4 and 5 say, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, James has already called us murderers and coveters when we fight and quarrel, but now he adds another Ten Commandment violation. He calls us adulterers. And then further, he calls us enemies of God. Now, why does, why does conflict, why does fighting and quarreling make us adulterers and enemies of God? Well, it does because in your conflict, you're loving someone more than you're loving God. And that someone is yourself. See, that's what it really boils down to. The reason that you get in conflict is because you love yourself more than you love God. If you loved God more than you loved yourself, you would give up that desire that has been exalted to a point it shouldn't be rather than sin. But you don't. You would rather sin and you commit adultery before God. And in doing so, you are choosing friendship with the world and you're making God your enemy. And so then going back to that original question that James poses, you know, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The answer is not poor communication. The answer is not different styles and ways of living. The answer is not the stresses of life. The answer is not because God has given you a terrible spouse to live with. The answer is the man in the mirror. The answer is you. You have elevated your desires above the desire to honor and glorify your creator and savior. And now I know that's hard to hear. It's very hard to hear, especially if your spouse is doing that just as much as you are. But it's true. And unfortunately, it, it leaves us with, with quite a problem. Because if the issue is, is me, then that means I can't just go and change my circumstances, change my situation. There's going to be no, no easy or quick fix to our conflict. And this can bring a sense of, of hopelessness. Because who can change who they are? Who can change their heart? Who can, who can if, if, if the issue is that we need this open heart surgery, who can perform open heart surgery upon themselves? I can't. You can't. And so we, are, are we left hopeless when it comes to, to this conflict that's plaguing our marriages? Well, the next words in our passage are some of the sweetest words in all the Bible. Verse 6. But God gives more grace. But God gives more grace. So you can't change you. But God can. You can't change your desires, but God can, and he can give you new and better and more righteous desires. See, if your marriage is, is struggling right now because of all of the conflict, if you're, you're just tired of fighting, 
You're tired of a miserable marriage. You see all these other marriages that look so good and yours is just not that. You're tired of being, being, um, having no joy when you come home. If you're, you're tired of going to bed alone and having to sit down and explain to your children what's going on. You're tired of this divide between you and your spouse. And, and you're also tired of, of trying to change but seeming like you keep failing and failing. Well, because of God's infinite grace, your marriage is not without hope. God can change you, and God can change your situation. And that leads to our second point of the sermon. So first point was, we need a biblical understanding of, of, of conflict, and we see that the root of conflict is really ourselves. And so how do we deal with it? How do we, what's the solution? Because we don't want to live in that anymore. We don't want to uh, a, we're sinning against God, and B, it's terrible. It's hard. And so what is our now biblical understanding of handling conflict? And we see that because the problem is we have elevated our desires above the desire to honor and glorify God, therefore the solution is that we need to get ourselves and our desires off of the throne of our heart and we need to get God back to his rightful place. And James gives us three necessary actions that must occur if that's going to happen. So let me read verses 6 to 10 uh, again for us. But God gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so if you look through here, James gives kind of 10 imperatives, 10 commands to us on how we are to deal with conflict that arises because of our own selfish desires. And I've group these 10 commands into essentially three actions for dealing with conflict in your life and in your marriage. And here they are. First, you need to humble yourself. Second, you need to repent and forgive. And third, you need to call out to God. Humble yourself, repent and forgive, and call out to God. Now what James provides here is really a a simple solution. It's not, it's not complex. I mean, these are the basic practices of the Christian life. There's no fancy gimmicks, no books that you need to read or methods that you need to memorize. And yet, though it's simple, it doesn't mean that it's, that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Dying to yourself, which is essentially what James is telling you to do, isn't easy. But remember... Verse 6, he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Yes, you have got a mountain to climb. But you've also got the Lord Jesus Christ giving you all the strength that you need to do it. And so looking now at our first first tactic for, for crushing the conflict in our hearts. We need to humble ourselves. And the actual command to humble yourself is given to us directly in verse 10 when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, but it's also kind of repeated throughout the the passage. Verse 6 and 7, for example, says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. See, James highlights here that, that what humility looks like is submission to God. You know, to place yourself under God's authority and rulership for your life. To take your desires, and your own will, which you've pridefully elevated as more important than obedience to God, and to submit them to Christ. Now, you, you, we've all got this most important list of, of people on our hearts, and in conflict, what it reveals is that you are the one who is sitting at the top of that list. And as long as you're sitting there, you are going to fight and you are going to quarrel anytime someone isn't treating you like you're the king, you're at the top. But James says, what needs to change is you need to submit to God. 
God needs to very quickly get back to the top of that list or you are going to continue to sin and your marriage is going to suffer. And that requires humbling yourself. That's easier said than done. It's not just as simple as, as saying, oh, today I have decided I'm going to wake up and I'm going to humble myself. No, there needs to be a a complete change of heart and mind if there's going to be a change of attitude and action. And that change will only begin with rightly understanding who God is and who you are. You need to understand who God is and who you are if you're going to be humbled. It's only when we have a big view of God and a little view of ourselves that we keep ourselves from creeping back up to the top of that list of our hearts. You know, there's no other place where the, the greatness of God in contrast to the utter weakness of man is displayed than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, at the cross, we see God's absolute holiness. We see his, his righteous wrath. We see his perfect justice and his, his brilliant Wisdom. We see his glorious mercy and his wonderful grace. We see his immense love and faithfulness. And we see the all-encompassing power that he has over his enemies. We see all of that when we just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. But we also see our utter weakness. The reason that Jesus is hanging there upon the cross, stripped naked, beaten and bloody, suffering the wrath of God, crying out to his Father, why have you forsaken me? It's because of us. It's because of you. It's because of me. It's because of our sins. Because we've got ourselves into a mess that we couldn't get ourselves out of. And yet God, being rich and mercy, gave his very own precious and perfect son for pathetic sinners like you and me. And now that should deeply humble us. I mean, how can you go on? How can you go on serving your own will and your own desires above the will of God? I mean, when we take an honest look at the glory of God and the weakness of man displayed for us at the cross, It should lead us to say, okay, God, I'm done. I'm done living for myself. I'm done making this about me and about my will. You are the Holy One. You are the Worthy One. You are the Lord, and you are the one that I am here to live and serve. I submit myself to you. No matter how hard it's going to be, I submit myself to you. And so the next time you're tempted to, to fight or to bicker, over something with your spouse, think to yourself, who is sitting on the top of your list here? Who is sitting on the top? Are you the one who caused Jesus Christ to be crucified upon the cross? Or is the perfect, risen Son of God sitting at the top of your list? Now on a more practical note, I've got kind of three changes that you can expect to see if you are humbling yourself and submitting yourself to God. First, you're going to begin to evaluate your expectations and desires. Some of our expectations or desires that we have might be biblically informed. But many times, if we're honest, our expectations for marriage are are based upon personal preference. When we look at the reasons why we fight, it's often personal preference issues. our, Our spouse is not doing something the way that we've grown up doing it or the way that we want it to be done. It's not, it's not most of the time matters of sin. You know, we often seek to conform our spouse to our image rather than God's image. And you need to evaluate that in your own heart. Is what you're desiring of your wife or husband in line with God's purposes or is it in line with yours? And if it is, you know, a godly desire, is that desire then being elevated above your obedience to God? I'll give you a personal example from my life. Uh, I don't like uh, being late for things. Uh, now, that, that can be a godly desire. If, if my desire is to be a man whose who's yes means yes and whose no means no, like the Scripture says, or if, or if my desire is, not to, is to steward my time well and steward others' times well by not wasting it and showing up on time, 
That's a good desire. But it can also be a sinful desire. If I don't want to be late because I don't want to look bad in front of people because of my fear of man. And so I need to evaluate. What is my actual desire here? Is it, is it godly or is it, is it personal and sinful? And then, say so evaluate that even if it is a godly desire, I need to be sure that it's not getting elevated to a point where it becomes ungodly. You know, if we're running late and I get angry at my wife or my children, it doesn't matter that it was a godly desire or not. I've sinned, which God hates. And so we need to, we need to make sure that our, we need to be evaluating our desires and our expectations to see A, are they godly? And B, are they becoming ungodly because of our sin? Now, a second change that you'll notice if you seek to humble yourself and submit to God is that you will be more interested in your, in your spouse's best interest than your own. You'll be more interested in your spouse's best interest than your own. Uh, we, we read in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, a true humility means that it's not going to be all about you. you know, on that list that I've mentioned of our hearts, God reigns at the top, but you might think, okay, yeah, sure, God's at the top, of course, but I'm second. You know, I'm next on that list. No, you're not next on the list. You're not even third or fourth on the list. You need to have the same mind of Christ, which is to count others as more significant than yourself. Now imagine, imagine if you and your spouse, spouse both practice this within your marriage. And how much less conflict would there be? And when you're tempted to, to quarrel and to argue, if you were to ask yourself, am I doing this for my best interest or am I doing this for my spouse? Am I doing this, am I counting my spouse as more significant than I am or am I counting, or am I counting myself as more significant? Who am I serving here? And so that's the second thing that we'll see if we humble ourselves. You're going to care more about your spouse and about meeting their needs. And then lastly, a third change you'll notice is if you seek to humble yourself and submit to God, that you're going to be eager to receive the reproof and correction from your spouse. You know, a proud person rarely sees themselves as, as doing anything wrong. You know, it's always, you know, they made me do it. Or, it's, okay, it's bad, but is it really as bad as what you're doing? You know, there's this, this blindness to sin that even correction doesn't help. But on the other hand, a, a humble person, when correction comes, they welcome it. Even if it might challenge their pride. And that's because a humble person doesn't have an image to maintain. A humble person is not about themselves. A humble person recognizes that they are nothing apart from Christ. And so any reproof is good reproof because it makes them more like Christ. It's not about making Lucas look good. It's about conforming Lucas to Christ. And so you'll take correction. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, now, now it's hard. Hebrews 12 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. No one loves criticism because it means they're probably in sin. But then Hebrews 12 verse 1 continues on. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Do you want that? Do you want righteousness and peace? But then be willing to, to be corrected and reproved. And so that's the first way that we biblically handle conflict in our marriages. We humble ourselves before God. You are not the kingpin put on the earth so that others will, will serve you. You are here to do the will of God and to serve others, not your own desires. Now moving on to the second way of, and that was, that was our longest point. Moving on now to the second uh, way to deal with conflict in your life and marriage, and that is through repentance and forgiveness. 
Now, repentance requires humility, so really it's, it's an outflow of humbling ourselves, but it's so vitally important to resolving conflict that we're going we're gonna to look at it as its own separate point. And we, we see the importance of it in verses 8 and 9. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, James calls us to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, and to weep over our sinfulness. See, what you're doing when you're in conflict is very serious. Conflict is not a, it's not a little thing. Remember what James calls it? Murderous, covetousness, uh, adulterous, an enemy, it makes you an enemy of God. That is serious. There, there, can be, there can be no change or no moving forward in your marriage if your sin is not dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. And that's going to involve honestly reflecting on your own sin, owning up to your, your sinfulness in the conflicts that you have, confessing it and repenting of your exalted desires and passions, or else there is going to be no change. There's going to be no change in your relationships. Repentance is as necessary to change as breathing is to life. When there, when there is no repentance, you can be sure that there is going to be conflict. Now, a lot of people can, can say and think that they are repenting, when in reality they're faking it. I mean, perhaps you're someone who, who you just don't like tension. You don't like tension between you and your spouse. And so to relieve the tension, what you do is you say, um, you say, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. Can we, just, can we just move on from this? Well, that's not real repentance because there is, there is no desire to change. There's no desire to change. Or there's, there's time, you just, you just don't want, you don't like the pressure of tension in your marriage. Or there's other times when people do the classic, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you made me do that. I'm sorry you made me get angry back there. I'm, I'm sorry, you just, it frustrates me when you do that, and I, I'm sorry. That's not repentance either. You're not acknowledging that you are the problem. You're repenting for your spouse. True repentance involves owning up to your sin, not your spouse's. It involves being broken and weeping. Your laughter turned to mourning. It involves confessing it to God and to others. And then asking God to change your heart and realign you to his word rather than the path of sin that you're walking down. My wife tells me sometimes she grew up having a bad view of repentance, not because of what her parents taught her, but just what she thought. She, she would take cookies from the cookie jar and she would take one and say, eat it and then say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then go and take another cookie and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's not repentance. Repentance involves asking God to change our hearts, to, to align them to his will. You know, a, a prayer of true repentance might look something along the lines of this. Dear Lord, I realize that my anxiety, my anger, and my frustration are coming from my desire to control my situation. Lord, I confess that I'm not trusting in you. I confess that I'm leaning on my own understanding. I confess that I have exalted my desire to have peace and order in my household above my desire to not sin against you. And so, Lord, purify my heart. Reorient my desires. Forgive me and strengthen me to trust in you. That's what our repentance should look like. And then, of course, repenting to God is only half of what's required. See, when we sin, we're called to repent to those who have also been affected by our sin. And in marriage, that's, that's primarily going to be your spouse and your children. And I have a quick, few quick guidelines uh, for what, what repentance should look like. First, repentance needs to be immediate. And the longer that you, you leave a disease untreated, the more damage that it causes. And the same is true for sin. The longer that your sin goes unconfessed, the more painful it's going to be, A, to confess it, and be upon you and your relationship. 
And so you need to confess to your spouse as soon after the incident as possible. And you're going to save yourself and others a lot of pain. You know, if you get in, in a fight while, your wife, while you're leaving for work, you get in a fight with your wife, work can wait. You can be late for work. You need to deal with it. Now, you may not be able to deal with it in full. You can't sit down and have a full one-hour counseling session. Further conversations might be required to, to really tackle the conflict. But if there is sin, you need to make it right before splitting up. Second, when you repent, resist the temptation to repent for the other guy. Oftentimes, our, our attempts at repentance can sound something like this. Back there, you know, when I, when I said those things, that wasn't me. My, my anger got a hold of me. I said some things that I didn't mean. You know, I, I hate it when I become that guy, and I'm, I'm sorry. I need, not, I need to not become that guy. Once again, that's, that's not repentance. It's really easy to, to repent for the other guy, for someone else. You know, the, the other Lucas that I, that I turn into. Yeah, it's easy to, to repent for him. I'm, I, you, you avoid all responsibility for your sin. Now, you need to own up to your sin. It was you and you and, and nobody else or no situation can, can be blamed but your own sinful heart. And so a more appropriate repentance would be, I want to confess to you that I was angry back there. I said things that I meant, that were rude, and that were disrespectful. And I said them because I wanted to hurt you, because you hurt me. I should never have treated you in that way. Will you please forgive me? You need to own up to your sin. Don't blame it on the other guy. It was you who did it. And then third, repentance should be specific. We don't just sin generally. We sin specifically. And therefore, our confession should be specific. And we can sometimes hide behind the generalities of sin to to protect our, our pride or to make it less personal. But naming things, naming the sin, makes it personal and meaningful. You know, I don't just call my kids girl one, two, three, four. I give them names because it's meaningful. It's, it's personal. And so part of, of true repentance is naming the specific sin and confessing it. And so those are some helpful things when it comes to repentance that is going to be needed and required in your marriage. And then something you can kind of think on and ask yourself is what I said, does that, does that describe you? Are you a person whose life is, is marked by repentance? Think, when is the last time that you repented to your spouse, repented to someone else if you're not married, for some of your sins against them? When's the last time? I guarantee you, you're sinning a lot more than you are repenting. And if you are, you know, is it true, humble repentance? Or is it one of these, these counterfeits that just seek to either avoid your own sin or shift the blame off of you. Many marriages suffer and live in continual conflict because one or both spouses are not taking seriously their own sin and willing to repent of it. Now, equally important to repentance in marriage and just as detrimental to marriage if it's lacking is extending forgive, is, 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 ext- is not extending forgiveness when your spouse does repent. See, repenting, repenting is hard. It's a hard thing to do. But so is forgiving. I mean, forgiving is even, even harder, especially if your spouse has deeply, deeply wounded you by their sin. Now, I understand that, that the topic of forgiveness is, is a larger topic, and it raises many questions. Does forgiveness mean you forget about your spouse's sin? Does forgiveness mean that you reconcile to the exact same way that it used to be beforehand? Does, does, do you forgive if, if they're actually not repenting to you? Does, does it mean everything just returns to normal? These are, these are all questions that need to be wrestled through in God's word. And, and uh, if you do have more questions on that, I can, I can wrestle through God's word with you. But for now, I, I don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, but... The resounding theme of Scripture that should really 
guide all of our thoughts regarding it is that if someone sins against you and they come to you in repentance, it is your Christian duty to not withhold that from them. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Why would, we ever, why would we ever do that? Why would we ever forgive someone who sinned against us 77 times? Well, Paul gives us the reason in Colossians 3 verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, we have no right to withhold forgiveness considering all that God has forgiven us for our sins. And so when your spouse does come to you in repentance, you don't say, blah, 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 I've heard it all before. Or we'll let time tell if this is, if this is genuine, genuine, buddy. Or, or you don't deserve my forgiveness. No, they don't deserve your forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. But neither did you deserve Christ's forgiveness. We forgive just as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. And that's hard. I know that it's hard but God will give you the grace to do so. So that's the second way to handle conflict biblically within your marriage through practicing genuine repentance and genuine forgiveness. And now, very quickly, our final but most important point. Last way we handle conflict biblically in our marriages is to call out to God. To call out to God. Specifically, to call out to God for grace and strength. Twice in in verse 6, we see that verb, give. You know, God gives more grace. God gives grace to the humble. And so what James is emphasizing here is that we don't have, we don't have, God, God needs to give to us in order to accomplish. So you cannot change your selfish or ungodly desires. You cannot change your heart where the conflict is, is coming from. You can't even humble yourself or walk in true repentance, the two things that we just talked about, on your own. God must give you his grace. And that's why this last point is so important. You must call out to God for his strength to change you. And now if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you haven't placed your faith and trust in Him, you haven't repented of your sins, well, then you can expect no change. The very first step is you need to call out to God to save you and to to give you a new heart that He promises you, to, to forgive you of your sins and to make you no longer a slave to your sin and your own desires and your own passions, but to give you new desires and a new heart. And to allow you to walk in the proper way that God has ordered you and called you to walk. You need to call out to him. And the promise of scripture is that he will not turn you away. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so call out to him this morning if you haven't. And if you are a child of God, you also need to call out to God for strength to change. Lord, give me the grace to trust in your purposes. Give me the grace to to tear down the idols of my heart. Give me the grace to resist the flesh and the devil. Give me the grace to to love my spouse and to count her as more significant than myself. Give me the grace to to see how I have wrongfully served my own desires. If you try to do all these things on your own, if you try to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, you're going to fail. You need the grace of God. And the wonderful promise is that when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Verse 8 tells us that. That when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. What a beautiful truth that is. Draw near to God. And he will come to you. He will listen to you. He will hear your prayers. He will hear your cries for help. And he will answer them. And he will give you the grace that is needed. He draws near to you and comforts you and strengthens you. And so are you struggling in conflict in your marriage or with others? Well, are you calling out to God for his 
grace to change? Are you drawing near to him regularly and in prayer and in the word of God? Or do you see this mountain before you and say, I can climb it on my own? Well, you can't. Conflict in marriage can be one of the the greatest joy suckers in this life. It prevents us from enjoying God's beautiful institution of marriage. It it drives this wedge between us and our spouse. It, It affects our children and our relationship with our children. But saddest of all, your conflict and your sin in your conflict, it separates you from God. And it drives you away from him. But as we saw this morning, there is a solution. First, you need to recognize that you and your desires are the problem. That you are in rebellion against God when you cast him off the throne of your heart and you place yourself there. But then we also need to recognize that God gives more grace. And so we humble ourselves We honestly repent to God and to others and we call out to God for grace to truly change our heart. Now may this be true of every single one of us here today. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture. I don't think anyone here can sit in this room and say that they never have to deal with conflict. Lord, that it's something that's foreign to them, that um, we all have to deal with it, Lord, and we all often sinfully or wrongfully deal with it. Lord, we seek other methods, we avoid it, we um, give the silent treatment when it comes, we explode in anger, we withhold from our spouses, and yet, Lord, we see So clearly, you have given us a a solution to our conflict. You've given us a way to restore what is beautiful in our relationships. And Lord, we do ask for your grace. We know that this can't be done on our own. We know that it's only done through the power and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit that he has given us to now walk in the fruit of the spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us As we go home, Lord, I pray that you would bring repentance in our hearts, that we would see our sin, that we would mourn over it, and that we would weep over it, and that we would bring it to you and confess it to our spouses. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.